Jesus doesn't tell us to fast. He just says we will. And he tells us what to do and what not to do when we do and we don't. It's embarrassing. If he told us to fast, we would fast. I think we would. If he told us to. What he does instead is give us instructions for when we do. It seems subtle, perhaps, but it's not passive-aggressive. Jesus is, is sincere. He really thinks we're going to fast. That's why he says what he says. Without commanding us to do so, he genuinely expects us to. And he tells us how to behave when we do. Jesus doesn't tell us to weep and lament, but he says we will. And the world will rejoice, he says, which is what we would rather do instead. If Jesus told us to weep and lament, though, would we? He doesn't tell us to, but he gives us instructions for when we do. Again, he's not just dropping a hint. He isn't manipulating us into tears and sorrow by telling us what to do when tears and sorrows overcome us. No, he's sincere. He genuinely expects all of us to weep and lament. He really thinks that we will. And he tells us how to behave when we do. If fasting accomplishes something in and of itself, if it did, Jesus would certainly have told us to fast. But fasting does not accomplish anything in and of itself, at least not spiritually. Sure, fasting will help you lose weight. It will also reduce inflammation and give you more steady energy and a better night's sleep. Contrary to what people say who don't fast, but claim instead that they can't concentrate when they're hungry, fasting actually increases concentration too. The heathen, who have not even figured out how useless it is to worry, the heathen have nonetheless long known the benefits of fasting, and so they fast, because the benefits are obvious. Although these benefits are hidden from those who are sated and glutted and, and filled with material delights that leave them sad and depressed and listless in their obnoxious abundance to which they are addicted, nonetheless, to those who have not lived in such opulence, the benefits of fasting have long been known and employed by every people that has ever walked the earth by every people that has ever sought God either in vain, in their own imagination and works, or else sincerely, as they earnestly and with godly fear sought God in the pages of Holy Scripture. Every people, every nation, every tribe, every civilization the world has ever known has fasted as a matter of course and routine discipline because the benefits of fasting are obvious. Jesus doesn't expect us to fast because that's what Christians do. He expects us to fast because, and speaks as though it were a given thing because that's what people do. In some measure we do. 
We deny ourselves pleasures in order to maximize other pleasures, whether with food or money. We do it all the time. We do it for the sake of what we value more highly. That's key, what we treasure. We delay gratification in order to increase the gratification when it finally comes. Even unbelievers can read the statistics, for instance, of what becomes of a marriage that didn't save intimacy until after the vows were spoken. Statistically speaking, they're practically doomed from the start if God's grace does not intervene. It doesn't take a Christian or even a particularly spiritual person to value the long-term satisfaction of, in this case, marriage, more highly than the short-term passing bursts of pleasure that almost always guarantee great pain and heartache. I value a good night's sleep more than the pleasure of coffee at night. And I enjoyed this morning's coffee because I did not drink it last night, even though I would have liked to. I fasted, sort of, huh? Similarly, I value my marriage more than the pleasure that young men and young women can't, can't hardly wait for and often sinfully don't. I was a young man once. But I owe my happy marriage in large part to the fact that both my wife and I did not seek this pleasure outside of the sacred bonds of wedlock. God who gives his commands loves us. And even heathen, unbelievers who don't have God's favor, are able to figure this out, at least to some degree. Now again, this is not a mystery that only Christians have learned. It's, it's obvious. If you've never fasted, I don't want you to think that you have sinned. If Jesus' matter-of-fact ex expectation that you would know what it's like to fast embarrasses you, though, because you have never fasted, then fine. Be embarrassed. If the shoe fits, but go ahead and fast. Just be sure not to talk about how hard it is so that people praise you for your self-control and envy your shrinking waistline. If you fast, follow our Lord's instructions. Anoint your head, wash your face, and don't let on. I have fasted. Some of you know it. What's more embarrassing than having never fasted is having told people when you're fasting. So take it from one who knows embarrassment. Denying yourself some pleasure or another, if there will be any spiritual benefit to it, will invariably teach you how pathetic you are, how obsessed you are with your own body, with your own urges, with your own success. You'll learn, if your pride doesn't prevent you from learning it, how selfish you are, how much you think of yourself. More than embarrassing, it's shameful. If there is a spiritual benefit to fasting, it will not be found in gaining progress and disciplining yourself. It will be in discovering how empty you are without God filling you. That is, it will be in discovering how weak you are and powerless you are to overcome your own self-love and pride. Never mind the great mental and physical benefits to fasting. 
The greatest benefit is in discovering how spiritually deprived you are and how much you need God's mercy. This discovery is between you and God. When you fast, Jesus says, keep it that way. Jesus doesn't tell us to fast. He doesn't tell you to deny your daily bread. He tells you to pray for it. He doesn't tell you to delay gratification in food and drink, but to expect it and thank God when it comes. Nor does Jesus tell you to weep and lament. He tells you to rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. He doesn't tell you to be sad, but to be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Is that what you want? Do you want the forgiveness of sins from God? But what if Jesus did command fasting? What if he really did tell you that you can't eat meat, say, I don't know, on Fridays during Lent or something? Could you manage? Of course you could. Even if it were more severe than that, if your father says to you in the morning, no food for you until dinner, that would be unpleasant for sure. You'd rather eat than not, right? But simple enough. No food for me, so I guess I don't eat. Plus, I gain hereby approval from my dad that I dearly desire. Approval that is more precious than food right now. Simple enough. And what if Jesus did command you to weep and lament? What if he really did tell you to stop being filled with such a light and happy heart and to be sad instead? What if this were the price of God's favor? That if you could be sad enough, well, then God would forgive you. And you would overlook all the wrong that you've ever done, felt, or thought. Could you do it? Could you empty yourself of all the joy that fills your heart in the best of times on a dime and persuade your heart to grieve instead? No. You can't. You have no power to crush your heart. You need God to. If Jesus tells you to fast, you can. But he doesn't. If you will, you must, especially when what is offered to you, if you do, is better food than any man has ever tasted. If Jesus tells you to weep and lament, you can't. You can put on a show, but even if eternal joy is at stake, you have no power to cast away the passing joys of a single hour, even if doing so could earn the eternal pleasures and happiness and riches of everlasting and painless life. You can't crush your own heart. God must crush your heart. It is God who must show you that you are but dust, and to dust you shall return. So never mind what Jesus does not command you to do, whether fasting or weeping. Jesus lets the prophet tell him to do these things as through Joel, as we just heard. Turn to me with all your heart. What power do I have? With fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Do it. But you can't. You can't do it unless God reveals to you what every fiber of your being expends all its natural energy to deny. That you are a poor, miserable sinner, a selfish rebel, more interested in pleasing yourself than in thanking the God who gives you all you have. 
every fiber of your natural frame resists this. Because the greatest pleasure and the greatest treasure we were born worshiping is our own righteousness. But God reveals this to you. See where he does. Where he speaks through the prophets in clear words. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. But you have put your trust in your strength, your virtue, your discipline, your career, your duties as a father or mother, in popularity, and even such silly things as food when you're hungry. You have feared losing these, which cannot help you or save you more than losing God's grace. Here is our sin. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Your violation of the first commandment is proven by your violation of this commandment. For you have mocked this name. When these gods have failed, yet you have continued to call upon them. These gods who are not the Lord and which were doomed to fail and you knew it and you trusted them anyway, you have mocked the name of the Lord by cursing and complaining and seeking mammon and passing pleasures rather than praying to the everlasting God in the day of trouble and patiently waiting for his deliverance. You have let temptation seize you and you have even prepared for it by deceiving your heart rather than asking God for strength to resist what you know is wrong. Stolen bread is sweet to a man, the proverb says, but afterward his mouth will be filled with gravel. God tells you to ask for your daily bread and to thank him for it. Your own desire ruins whatever pleasure you steal. Experience tells you, but forget embarrassment. God's word tells us, here is our sin. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, but you have desired the rest your labor has earned over the rest you find in listening to Jesus and learning from his word what he has earned for you. You have desired the delights of the world over the delights of Eden. So, this is where we deserve to stay. You neglect to hear God's word and meditate on it and to show by example that learning from God is more precious than whatever else you feel like doing when his word is being preached. And when the angels who guard the Garden of Eden, remove their swords and welcome you in, you play in the dust. Here is our sin. Honor thy father and thy mother, that it may be well with thee and thou mayest live long on the earth. But we seek the good life with no thought to who lengthens it. By honoring ourselves, we despise authority and suppose things would be better if we were in charge because we're smarter and more virtuous than our rulers. God knows whom he has sent to us, and he knows why, and he knows what we must suffer. How we treat authority on earth reveals how we regard God's authority in heaven. Here is your sin and mine. Thou shalt not murder, but we hold grudges and kill in our hearts. We place our own righteousness as judge over others who have angered us. We make ourselves gods and fantasize about vengeance as though either God were unable or unwilling to, to right the wrong. 
and we bring shame on the death that God himself died by imagining there is more righteousness in our anger than in his forgiveness. This is our sin. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And what do we think of marriage? Do we look at it as just as outward a thing as eating? Or what lusts do we feed in our own hearts? And how much do we listen to the world that teaches us the value of the mother's womb? And listen to the world that teaches us that your body belongs to you rather than the God who made it? How much do we honor marriage? How much do we adulterate it in our hearts? Thou shalt not steal. But we take, we take time with lazy efforts at work, and we don't promote the hard labor of others, but focus constantly on our own. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, and yet we delight to hear evil of those who have angered us. We express concerns about one another rather than talking to a brother. We get all hurt and offended. Somebody comes to you and says, you got to stop doing this, brother. You're sinning because he should mind his own business. But if your soul is in danger, it's the business of every Christian. Thou shalt not covet. I could list every other sin now. Oh, our hearts. Our hearts are full of, full of sin. And we know it because of what God commands us to do. And because of what God commands us not to do. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, you have heard what God tells you. You've heard what you failed to do. Forget embarrassment. Confess your sins. Rend your heart. Open it up to him who opened it for you. Who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and who relents from doing harm to you. He exposes your heart. This is his doing. He does what you cannot do. He reveals to you how empty you are. But fasting can never in and of itself reveal. For the kingdom of God is not in eating or drinking, or for that matter, not eating and drinking. But it is in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And you will only find this where you look to where God has done what no man can ever do. But what only God can do. As he bears in his body and deep within his soul all your sin and every ounce of God's wrath against it. In order that he might open his heart and have mercy on you. So more than what fills your belly, deny this pleasure. Deny the pleasure that nags at your heart more strongly than food or sex ever can. Deny the pleasure of your own righteousness. And come where God does in your heart what you can't do for yourself, where he crushes you and teaches you that you need a savior, because that's where he's gonna give you a savior where Christ is preached, who bore all your sin and reveals to you a Father in heaven who loves you and who doesn't condemn you.
So don't fast. I don't care. Plan for next year, maybe. It doesn't even have to be for Lent. Or for a full day, even. Don't deprive yourself of a thing right now. Focus rather on what God has commanded and don't forget it. You can go without eating for a day or a morning or whatever, but you can't manufacture the sorrow and weeping that God is able to turn into gladness. You can't do it. But he can. The one who is able to rend your heart by the commandments which we have just heard is the one who is able to mend your heart too. He is the one who fills your heart with a greater treasure than you will ever find on earth. It is the treasure of the forgiveness of all your sins, which our God has won for us by sending his Son into the flesh to redeem us. And he is patient and abiding in steadfast love. He wants you to add to your faith every virtue, not so that your faith becomes saving faith, but so that you might continue to follow Jesus where he is leading you and trust in him and avoid every danger and temptation so that you might cling to him in faith all your days and set your mind on heavenly things where Christ is and where by God's grace you will be too. In Jesus' holy name, amen.